Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. All right. Well, I'm happy to be concluding the Kingdom Parables series. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Anthony, and I pastor the Vine Campus over in the Vine neighborhood, appropriately. So we do service over there. That's right. Woo woo! On Saturday nights, so occasionally I do double duty and I preach there on Saturday and come here in the morning and I really enjoy it, so I'm happy to be here. I am concluding the message on the concluding, I had that happen earlier in first service too, like could not talk right. Damon? No, I'm just kidding. I'm concluding the Kingdom Parable series by talking about the mindset of the kingdom. Now we spent some time talking about the king of the kingdom and we talked about God's character and what he's like. We spent some time talking about how to relate to the king of the kingdom. Once you know who he is, how, how are we in relationship with him? How should we address him? But this morning, I want to dive into Luke 18. I want to talk about how should we think in the kingdom? What should our default setting be? I know it's good. It is good. Thank you, Laura Shockley. Give me an amen. amen. Yes, that's right. We're going to talk about the mindset of the kingdom. It should be fun. Let's get into it. Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So it's a pointed parable already. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And God was duly impressed, no doubt. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. That's right. So this parable practically preaches itself. This is one of those you read, you feel like, okay, well, the main points are right there on the surface. I can probably continue my morning devotional time to something more challenging or something that I'll actually get something out of, right? Okay, be humble, that's fine. You know, don't be a Pharisee. We all think that, right? We immediately read this parable. I was talking to Richard Roy after first service, and most of us do the absolute worst thing. We read it, and then we say, thank you, God, that I'm not like that Pharisee. I'm <laughs> just hilariously wrong and we're, we're going to discover that this morning I wanted to use an old school church graphic we know them we love them from our Sunday school days and here's one that I found of the Pharisees so full of himself and then the the lowly sinner in the shadows one I don't think this is accurate because that guy looks kind of poor in the background and the Pharisee looks kind of rich which we're going to discover might not have been the case exactly but I wanted to use a graphic that brings it into the present day so a Google search, where all good pastors go for illustrations, yielded this painting for the Pharisee and the tax collector. I like that. I like it for two reasons. One, I can relate. I grew up in a church where most of the adults were expected to dress up and wear suits. And I like it for the second reason that, look at that guy's face. Like, you just, you want to slap him already. <laughs> Like, I've never seen a more perfect rendition of the attitude of a parable. Like, he's got, the, like, the one side up, and, oh, it's icky. 
These are going to be our two guys for the rest of this message, okay? I hope to challenge us a little bit. I will have succeeded if we can root out the Pharisee in our heart and become a little bit more like the tax collector, although maybe not in some ways that we would immediately think. Let's talk about the setting. So two men go up to the temple to pray. What are they doing? Is it just 2 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon and they feel like going to the temple to have a little me and God time? Probably not. I was listening to a podcast earlier this year on April 7th, actually, on the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries podcast called Let My People Think, which right off the bat, I love the title, right? The Let My People Think podcast. And this guy's preaching named Michael Ramsden, who's like a senior member of the RZIM team, and his topic is, Is Christianity Arrogant? So I suggest everybody listen to it. He crafts his whole message around this parable. And in the message, he, he drops some knowledge on me. And I found it very interesting, so I will share that with you. Hopefully this is new and you can go, oh, wow, that's cool. They're not by themselves. They didn't just happen to be there at the same time. This is probably the well-attended evening sacrifice. A lot of people would go to the temple. The, Jew, the uh, priest would go through the whole ordeal where they sacrificed the lamb. They ceremonially splashed the blood on the side of the altar. It was, it was graphic. It was poignant. You know, it was, it was done every day. It was a very solemn time. And then after he did that, there would be a brief period where the priest would go and, and disappear off stage, as it were, to burn incense before the Lord. And when the priest went away to burn incense, everybody else who was there would pray. And it's a, a very solemn time, so they're probably praying and reflecting on what's going on. That would be what is appropriate. And this is the very scene we see at the beginning of Luke's gospel when, when we talk about John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. Check this out, Luke chapter 1. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So it's his turn at this ceremony to be the guy that goes into God's presence, leaves the stage, and burns the incense. And when this time came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So this is an everyday thing. It's a custom. It was probably a larger gathering like this. And it was done to accomplish propitiation. What in the world does that mean? If you've grown up in church like I have, and you had a good mom that dragged you to church like three days a week, You've heard words like propitiation and words like atonement. If you have not had the benefit of a mother that made you go to church twice on Sundays and once on Wednesdays, even though you wanted to stay home and you were never allowed under threat of doing the dishes and being grounded, then these words may be new to you. So let's talk about what it means. This word, propitiation, what the, what the sacrifice was trying to accomplish is used to talk about bringing about forgiveness, taking something away to deal mercifully with. And passively, it means to be merciful or to have mercy on someone. Mounts' expository, which I really like, it's a great reference and it's really user-friendly, so I suggest if you're into this kind of thing, you get a Mounts's. He defines it this way. It means to atone, have mercy on, make atonement for, and it's used of God's forgiveness and turning aside of his anger. That is so key. That is what they are there to celebrate. They've just seen an animal actually killed, probably gross, probably a little disquieting, right? They're all supposed to reflect on the fact that this is done to accomplish forgiveness for the stuff that you personally have done. This is a stand-in for you. 
the priest goes away to offer the incense and the worshipers stand outside praying on this theme would be appropriate. Asking for God's mercy, taking stock of themselves, thinking about the reality of the sacrifice that was necessary for them. Enter our two characters. First, the Pharisee. How does he react when this sacred moment comes? Before we get to that, let's back up and let me say that if we think of the Pharisee merely as the villain, we're doing a disservice to this guy and every other Pharisee. What this guy says about himself is true. When he prays to the Lord and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, correct. Especially not robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or even like the tax collector. He's right. He's not. In fact, fasting twice a week, that's extreme. That's going way over and above. The Jewish people were not commanded to fast even once a week. This guy's doing it twice. That's pretty amazing. And he gives a tenth of all I get. He gives a tenth of everything, even over and above what he's commanded to tithe on. He's tithing on it. This guy's tithing on, like, what does Jesus say? The cumin and the mint and the rue. Like, he's, like, portioning, portioning out a tenth of his baking spices. You know what I mean? That's the kind of person we're dealing with. Saying this guy's a normal person is, is not accurate. He's right in what he says. And Pharisees had a pretty good reputation before a lot of the New Testament just ruined that. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of true. All right. First of all, Pharisees took obeying God's law very seriously. I read this wonderful book called through Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. I know Pastor Bill also likes Kenneth Bailey. He grew up in the Middle East. He writes books in Aramaic. This guy's just immersed in that culture. And he has some interesting insights. He says, look, these people viewed the law of God as this beautiful flower garden that you wouldn't dare trample on. And in order to keep us out far away from trampling on God's flowers, they build a fence around it. Well, metaphorically, what was the fence? More rules. They got in trouble with Jesus for this all the time. Jesus is always saying, what is this oral tradition, this law of the elders stuff? Like, that, that's not required. I'm just talking about the law. But that's their fence. They're trying to honor God's law, so they go over and above to stay out of it. If God's law says don't go 65 on the freeway, the Pharisees don't go 60. Why? Because that speedometer might be off a few ways, one or the other. They just don't want to go anywhere near breaking God's law. But it's important to know that they felt that way because they were taking this very seriously. They're going over and above. Not only that, but the historian Josephus refers to the Pharisees as the people's party. So these are not party poopers, right? These are the people that had respect. They were admired. Jesus actually says to some Pharisees one time, he says, look, you guys just like the greetings of respect in the marketplaces and getting all the good seats whenever you go out to eat. Well, he says that because it was true. These are the people that the common man would see and say, oh, it's Pharisee Joe. My goodness. Boy, he's a great Jew, isn't he? Man, if I could take this Judaism thing as seriously as that, I can't. Maybe one day. But for now, I'll just, I'll really respect him. You know, they were looked up to in the community. They were admired. They were the good guys. And they usually lived simple lives. These were not super wealthy people, usually. There was a sect that kind of cornered the market on wealth. It was the Sadducees, if you're into that kind of thing. And they, they avoided excess. They lived simply. They usually did not occupy powerful positions. And here's a shock. According to my NIV study Bible, so it must be right. <laughs> they had a reputation. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, no, that's another great book. It's not the NIV study Bible. But that's irrelevant. They were respectful. 
they had a reputation for being respectful people, specifically to their elders. Now, in some of the encounters with Jesus, which are very heated, we wouldn't know that unless we were told, but these guys were walking around first century Israel, and they were respected, admired, good guys who took obeying God's law very seriously, and if you aspired to take God's law more seriously, you may, in fact, aspire to be a Pharisee. So everything he says about himself is true. Saying that someone that lives this way is just a normal Jew is like saying that this is a normal basketball player, right? That's the guy that all basketball players would uh, aspire to be. If LeBron James was giving an interview and he just kind of said, you know, some days I'm just thankful that I'm not like a normal basketball player. You know, I really like being LeBron James. Wouldn't we be like, well, well yeah, I would too if I was LeBron James. <laughs> Why would you want to be normal? Or it's like saying that Bruce Lee was a normal martial artist. If we heard Bruce Lee at his prayers one morning, which that would be awesome. I don't know if he's going to be in heaven, but that would be sweet. And he said, dear Lord, thank you that I get to be Bruce Lee. Wouldn't, wouldn't, we'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's appropriate. Like, I wish I was Bruce Lee. That's cool. No, I get it, man. But none of that is the point. This parable is not Jesus contrasting somebody who's trying real hard with somebody who's not trying hard. This passage, this, this whole parable is about the mindset of the kingdom. It doesn't have a lot to do with what you're doing. It has a lot to do with what you think of you. Bruce Lee was once asked, so, you know, it's now legend, right? Somebody asked Bruce Lee, are you really that good? This was Bruce Lee's response. If I tell you I am good, probably you will say that I am boasting. But if I tell you I am not good, you'll know I'm lying. <laughs> Bruce Lee was pretty good, right? But he didn't just want to come out and say, yeah, I'm boss. Like, haven't you seen my movies? I beat up Chuck Norris. He didn't want to say that because he was afraid of seeming arrogant. Something about arrogance was repulsive to this man. And that is where we're going. Kenneth Bailey says that in first century Judaism, there were three basic types of prayer. Here they are. Confession of sin. Now would be a good time for that, right? You've just seen the sacrifice. You're there to accomplish atonement and propitiation. The priest is gone. This would be a good time to confess your sin, would it not? Second one was thanking God for some bounty that you've received, a giving of thanksgiving. And the third one would be a petition for self or others. Bailey goes on to conclude in his book that this guy is standing there before the sacrifice and he, he's not even praying because none of what he says fits the bill. But Michael Ramsden from RZIM in the podcast that I love so much says, no, 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 don't miss the true depths of jerkdom that we are dealing with. It's number two. He's thanking God for a bounty received. He is thanking God for making him better than you. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. That is so sick. Isn't that just nasty? He's standing there in the temple before the sacrifice, he can probably smell the blood. Maybe they've already drug off the dead sheep. And he says, wow, thank you, God, for doing that for all these people that need it. Yeah, you're really good. You're really good to them. Aren't we great, though, you and me, God? Oh, Lord, I'm pretty awesome. Thank you for making me so great. Not like these other people, but bless them because, you know, they need it. This guy is an arrogant, self-righteous jerk. Yes, I am. I am. I'm going to bring it home a little bit. So 
I believe that, who has a lawn that they try to maintain? Does anybody have a lawn they just really love? Okay. Are dandelions like the worst thing in the world? They're the worst thing in the world. They will find a way into your lawn. They are airborne. Hold on. I believe that pride and arrogance are like dandelions in our heart. And if we are not diligent, they will pop up. I've been in the gym thanks to my wonderful mother, who I love. I don't remember a time that I was not in a weight room. All right? She worked at like three or four growing up. I've been in the gym a long time. All the gym issues that people deal with, I dealt with when I was like 14. You know what I mean? This is not new for me. And there's a guy at my gym, and he has invisible lat syndrome. All right? So he walks around like this. And he has the unique ability to strain so much that he has to exclaim, sometimes swear words, when he's doing like minimal weight, you know, like 10 pounds. Like, you know the guy, right? And it just, it makes my skin crawl, okay? And what's worse is that I've, I've seen him lift. You can't avoid it, right? Because he's drawing your attention, and he apparently doesn't know that he's not that strong. He certainly doesn't know that this guy can deadlift way more than him, right? Because I've seen him deadlift. At least he didn't know until about two weeks ago when I was doing my deadlift session. And I'm going down to the bar to lift up what I know is over 100 pounds more than this guy can do. And he walks in the door, and in my heart, this nasty, vile, pharisaical voice says, Oh, good. Oh, good. He's here. He gets to see you lift up this bar. And I shot up off that bar and, like, stepped back and, like, took my headphones out. And I'm like, who the heck is that guy in here? I know what that is. I've got dandelions in my lawn, you know. And it was a minute before I could bend down and, like, like, can I even do this right now? Like, am I just giving in to arrogance if I lift this up? And I had some heart work to do in the gym. Pride will find a way if you are not diligent. Let's bow our heads. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would remove arrogance and pride from your people this morning. Lord God, we repent repent for coming to church, Lord God, metaphorically coming in to celebrate the atonement, the sacrifice, standing before your goodness and thinking, oh God, I remember when I needed that. God, you're so gracious having brought me so far. Help these other people who are broken. Thank you for bringing me so far and making me so great. Lord, we don't want that. Help us remember that we need you. Lord, I pray that we would be unable to come into your presence without wanting all of it that we can take, Lord God. Let us not be complacent. Let us not feel like the job is done. Save us from our natural tendency, God, to become Pharisees, arrogant, self-righteous jerks who have confidence that they're doing all the right stuff. Remind us that we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. That was not the close. That was the halfway mark. But if that resonated with you, don't feel bad. I just told you a pretty embarrassing story about myself where I wanted to show up the guy that irritates me. Like, what kind of, why do I care? But I did care, and that's the point. Guys, get prayer for that if you need it. Don't let those pride dandelions fester. They will take over your lawn. Pluck them when there's only one or two. All right, moving on to the hero of the story who is not exactly the hero of the story, the tax collector. I say he's not a hero because this story isn't about a good guy and a bad guy. We'll get to that in a minute. But this tax collector 
comes before God and he beats his chest and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We need to know right off the bat that just like the Pharisee, this guy's telling the truth. When he comes before God and says, I'm a miserable worm, no one is going to disagree with that. Tax collectors were usually pretty nasty dudes. He would not even look up to heaven. That's because he knew what was going on. Tax collectors were thought of as traitors. Why? Because the Jewish community was pretty tight-knit. And these people said, forget that. I'm going to work for Rome, the foreign power who's oppressing us, and I'm going to collect money for them from my own people. Worse than that, you had to want to do this. People volunteered for this job, knowing that they'd be thought of as traitors and saying to themselves, well, at least it's lucrative. Why is it so lucrative? Because if the tax is 20 bucks, I can go to Sam down the street and say, hey, the tax is 40 bucks. He's got to pay. The muscle of the Roman government is behind me. What's he going to do? Argue? I pocket the 20 and Rome gets what they need. This was common practice. So common that tax collectors were absolutely hated. They could not be witnesses or judges. They were expelled from their local synagogues. And the shame didn't just stay with them. It extended to their whole families. And to be a tax collector, you had to be okay with that. What kind of person does this? Well, the kind of person that's the butt of every joke in first century Jewish society, right? Tax collector is synonymous with like the bottom of the barrel. We don't, we don't even want to associate with those people. They gave up on that. They're traitors. They extort money from us. They're the worst of the worst. Jesus once talked about uh, if, if somebody's sinning in the church and they sin against you, you go to them one-on-one, -on -one, right? And he says, but if they won't listen, you take two or three. And if they still won't listen to two or three people, you bring it before the church. But even if after that, if they're still in this, in this life of sin and rebellion and they won't listen to you, they won't listen to a few friends, they won't listen to the church, he says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let's not soften that. Jesus is endorsing the fact that these are the type of people who have, by their own choice, removed themselves from the fellowship in the community. Which isn't to say Jesus didn't come to call those exact people. If you flip over a chapter to Luke 19, you'll find Jesus doing exactly that. You'll find the story of Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. And one afternoon with Zacchaeus is enough to prove both points, that Jesus calls these people and that they were pretty miserable. He spends time with Jesus and says, you know, I'm going to pay back all the people I cheated. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, we know you did, and please do that. Thank you, Zacchaeus. But these guys were pretty nasty. You know, he's telling the truth, but that's not exactly the point. The fact that this guy's a terrible, nasty sinner was well known. But that's why Jesus chose him to illustrate this fact. Before I get into that, I really hope my next slide is the C.S. Lewis quote because that's the rhythm I'm feeling right now. Oh yeah, killing it. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Check this out. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. Worst is an important word there, by the way. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power and hatred. That is why... A cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. Now, I've seen this memed online a lot, and they always leave out the last line. I hate that. Because I think that it gives the impression that what Lewis is really saying is, 
God likes prostitutes when compared to church people. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying real sinners get in good with God. He likes those people. But those people that dress up and try real hard, God doesn't like those people so much. That's not the point. The point is what C.S. Lewis is saying. We're arguing about who's nearer to hell, not who's going there and who isn't. You don't want to be near to hell at all. That's why he says it's best to be neither. Don't do that. But C.S. Lewis's point is valid in this parable. We don't have a hero and a villain. We don't have one person to emulate according to their actions and one person not to emulate. We don't have somebody who's telling the truth and somebody who's lying. We have two sinners. We have two sinners. My sleeve. Stay. Man. Two sinners drawn to the temple, each for their own reasons, who have stood before the sacrifice. They're smelling the blood. They see the priest walk off stage. And one says, I'm glad I don't need that. And the other, the bottom of the barrel, the worst of the worst, says, oh my God, I just realized. I just realized that that's for me. And in the Greek, the, the, fair, the tax collector doesn't just say, have mercy on me. He uses that funny Greek word for atonement, that halaskomai word. It's only used a couple times in the Bible. The other is in Hebrews. He's beating his chest, and he's saying, this atonement that I just saw, Lord God, be propitious to me. The context is, if it's even possible. He can't even look to heaven, remember. It's not like he's making this, this bold petition. He's beating his chest. A sign of grief so intense and extreme, it's not even normally done by men in the Middle East, according to Bailey. Usually it's only women. Unless, it's the, unless the suffering and the grief is so extreme, like you just have to show, like, I can't even contain myself that I'm suffering so badly. And that's what he's doing can't look to heaven and says, is it possible, God, that this atonement can be for me? Is it possible that you can turn aside your anger because of this sacrifice to me with what I've done? Can you cover that? Can you remove that? Can you make that clean? And he doesn't even dare to look to heaven to ask because he knows exactly who he is. He's a tax collector. And Jesus says, you know what? Forget this other guy. That man, rather than the other, went home justified, forgiven. The atonement worked for this guy. It was wiped clean. The anger was turned aside. How do you explain that on God, from God? Why, why him? Why not the Pharisee who's doing all the right stuff? And God says this. It's because of the mindset of the kingdom. Because everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is all over the Bible. I'm only going to give two examples. In 1 Peter 5, 5 and also James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace in this story looks like a guy who knows he is a miserable, rotten, bottom-of-the-barrel sinner. Tax collector and prostitute were like hand-in-hand. Hand. I mean, you could not get any lower than a tax collector. He goes into God's presence has the humility and the courage to acknowledge who he is and what he's done, and gets grace, gets justified. But what does it mean that God opposes the proud, stands against, sets his face against, actually is in the way, is working contrary to the proud? What does that look like? And I'll tell you, God wants people in the kingdom. He's not looking to keep people out. He's looking to get as many people in as he can. That's why Luke writes about Zacchaeus in the next chapter. 
He even wants tax collectors. So God will help us. If you're an, an arrogant jerk or if you're tending that way, God is going to do you a huge favor. He is going to slap you. <laughs> Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this, I got three references up there for this one, so God is serious. This is like triple verified logos right here. When God, when God I, want, I want to say humiliates, but that's not accurate. When God humbles us, he's helping us. He wants us into the kingdom, and humility is the core of the mindset of the kingdom. Humility towards others and humility towards God. This entails thinking of yourself as you actually are, not posing, not posing to other people in church, but certainly not posing to God. In our prayer times, do we go before God and try to be more spiritual than we really are? Do we realize how silly that is when God has known you the whole time? Let's not do that. I have two statements derived from this parable that I want to close with. One is a challenge and one is an encouragement. Because the first one is a challenge, if that really hits you, you talk to Pastor Bill and Pastor Marilee, and they will just deal with that. But the second one I think is really cool. So if, if you really resonate with the second one, you can come talk to me. It can be either way. Here's the first one. Remember, Bill and Marilee are there for you. If you don't think you need God's forgiveness, you won't get it. The Pharisee needed it. He didn't think he did. He did not go home justified. He stood in the presence of God on purpose, like we're all doing here today, at least in theory. And his mindset was like a barricade between him and the reception of God's grace. May it not be. If you have a barrier of pride or arrogance or self-deception between you and God this morning, I invite you not to leave until you tear it down. What's the worst thing that could happen? You go home justified? Sounds terrible. Don't make God humble you. Let's humble ourselves this morning. And the second one, which is fun, the worst of sins in your past, even if it was this morning, cannot stop God's grace in the present. Do you know how the tax collector got right with God? He got in God's presence and he realized I feel terrible because I'm a dirty, rotten, scumbag tax collector standing before the sacrifice of Jesus. Actually, it wasn't Jesus quite yet, but we are. And that was what was necessary, to acknowledge that and said, say, God, is it possible that I can be forgiven, that you can turn your anger from me? I know full well who I am and what I've done. That is what's required. Some of us resist this because we don't want to face who we are or what we've done. But that's very important. So I'll ask some questions, and I'll look at no one as I ask these questions. Had sex outside marriage recently? How's the old drug addiction going? Gambling habit? Pornography? Get sloshed this weekend? Have something you can't stop? Do you feel really tight in your chest right now that I'm talking about these things? Good. Hold on to that. That's the thing. Bring that to God this morning and say, oh, it's true. I did that. I do that. I think that. I feel that. Oh my God, that's me. I can't admit that that's me. That feels scary. No, it is. That's how I've lived my life. That's what I've done. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's who I am. God can make you leave today justified. Ask him. 
Is it possible that that sacrifice can be for me? Can you wipe this away? Can you clean even this guy? Can you forgive this guy? And the answer, according to this parable, is even if you're a tax collector, yes. Take that to God. Leave justified. The mic is expensive. I won't drop it. I'll just hand it to Bill for for the close. Thank you, guys.